Well, this morning we will uh, be wrapping up our Advent sermon series and hopefully putting a, a bow on it. Advent, as we have been reminded, is a time of the year in which we celebrate the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and anticipate the promise that he will come again. And during Advent, there are certain focuses and attributes that we tend to highlight. They are represented in the Advent candle, those being hope and peace and joy and love. And in each week when each candle is lit one after the other, successively building upon that, it's to bring attention to each of those aspects that are not only embodied in the coming of Jesus Christ, but they are also those things that are cultivated within those who become the followers of Christ as well. And for the past few weeks, we have looked at each of those aspects. We've looked at what it means to have hope or what the Bible means to have hope as distinct from what we often mean when we have hope. We've looked at what it is to have peace that has been secured by Christ, peace with God, and we've looked at joy. And this morning, we turn our attention to the aspect of love, specifically God's love, being reminded that God so loved us that he sent his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And as all of these have been found in Romans chapter 5, every one of these aspects we see is at least uh, touched upon in the story of the coming of Christ and all that he has promised. So this morning we see that the love of God as it is expressed and as it is experienced, is very well illustrated in that text. And so I invite you to open your Bibles with me once again to Romans chapter 5, as we'll turn our attention to verses 1 through 11. Hear the word of God. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that sufferings produce endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood... Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received our reconciliation. The word of our God. Let's go to our God in prayer that he might speak to us this morning. Our Father, we do come being reminded of these powerful and profound words 
and pray that you would be at work within us to turn our attention to you and to the, 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 the magnificent sense of your love that is demonstrated in Christ and continues to be at work, a love that changes us, a love that frees us, a love that is the object of our hope. It is the basis of our joy, and it is what has brought us peace. Lord, may you grant us understanding. May we not only know of your love, but may we experience it this day. We pray this to your glory and to the joy and the peace and the hope of your people who are gathered here and around the world today. We pray this all in the name of Christ, who is the word, who is incarnated, has become one of us. To him be all glory in the church and throughout the world. Amen. As we look at this passage and we consider the love of God and what it teaches us about the love of God, we see, particularly as we look in verses 6 through 8, a lot of things that are packed in there. Now, if I was going to call your attention to anything, first and foremost, I would want to call your attention to this fact. God's love is unique. God's love is not like anything else that you have seen or experienced anywhere else in this world. It's different than what you've experienced in your marriage or even the best of illustrations of love in marriages, whether you're parents or grandparents, God's love is different even from that. God's love is different than anything that you're going to see on a holiday, uh, the holiday movies or Hallmark channel, and certainly different than anything you'll read in Nicholas Sparks' novel. And, heart, and, and God's love is absolutely different than what some people are longing for. And they go to their computer screens late at night while they are all alone. God's love is incredibly unique. It is different than anything else that we see in this world. The best that those other things offer to us is a reflection, and most of the times a pale reflection, of a particular aspect of God's love. But God's love itself, as we'll see as we unfold in this passage today, is utterly unique. It may be somewhat familiar to us if you are from the church and we talk about it and we read passages about it and we sing of God's love in such a way that it, it seems something that we know very well. But God's love is not only unique, but it is unfathomable for us because of its uniqueness. It's been said that if you believe, if you think that you understand God's love, in other words, if to you God's love is something that is very reasonable, that itself is evidence that you do not understand God's love. God's love is different from everything else that we experience in this world. And part of the reason that we don't understand it is because of its very nature and because of its consistency. It's a great quote by C.S. Lewis that he offers in, 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 uh, in his book, uh, The Four Loves. And he says this, No sooner do we believe that God loves us than there is an impulse to believe that he does so, not because God is love, but because we are intrinsically lovable. And, and so what Lewis is saying to us there is that the moment we think that we have understood God's love because we begin to compare it to other expressions of love that we see around us or that we 
may have experienced it, that there's something that within us that shifts it from the understanding and comprehension and contemplation of what God's love really is, and we lower it to something that is totally different and much less than what God's love is. Because Lewis is rightly pointing out, there, there's something that is within us that just assumes, of course, God loves us. I mean, look at us. What's not to love? And yet when that thought crosses our minds, we need to remind ourselves of this reality. That's not the gospel. It's not the great news of Christmas. See, the great Chris news of Christmas is that God loves us despite ourselves. What Lewis is essentially saying this, if I was to illustrate it, is that most of us, when we think of God's love and we sing of God's love and we celebrate God's love, particularly this time of year, we inevitably begin to look at ourselves and look around at one another and to think that God found us and picked us up off the shelves of a Macy's or FAO Schwartz somewhere when the reality is, according to God, that he found us all in the island of misfit toys. We think that there's something that is special, that is worthy of God's love. And yet when we look at this particular passage, we see God's love is unique because God's love is not to the lovable, but to the unlovely. Look at the words that God uses to describe the objects of his affection, those upon whom he pours his love, we, we see here. In, in verse 6, while we were still weak, and so these are people who are, are weak, people who don't have strength. There's nothing impressive about these people that God loves. While we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And so we see he's describing weak and ungodly. And ungodly is one of those words that is not easily um, comprehended. I, I, Jerry Bridges has a tremendous um, and profound and, and, and really a hard definition of ungodliness. And I want you to think about it for a moment. Here's what Bridges says. Contrary to what we normally think, ungodliness and wickedness are not the same. A person may be nice, respectful, a respectable citizen and still be an ungodly person. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Note that Paul distinguishes ungodliness from unrighteousness. Ungodliness describes an attitude toward God while unrighteousness refers to sinful actions in thought, word, or deed. An atheist or an avowed secularist is obviously an ungodly person, but so are a lot of morally decent people, even if they say they believe in God. Ungodliness may be defined as living one's life, everyday life, with little or no thought of God, or of God's will, or of God's glory, or of one's dependence upon God. Let me read that again. Ungodliness, because this is the characteristic that we are told is of those that God loves, the ungodly. Ungodliness may be defined as living one's everyday life with little or no thought of God, or of God's will, 
or of God's glory or of one's dependence upon God. This is us. Bridges goes on. You can readily see then that someone can lead a respectable life and still be ungodly in the sense that God is essentially irrelevant in his or her life. We rub shoulders with such people every day in the course of our ordinary activities. They may be friendly, courteous, and helpful to other people, but God is not at all in their thoughts. They may, even, they may even attend church for an hour or so each week. I'm glad he put the or so in there. Um, but, uh, but then live the remainder of the week as if God doesn't exist. They are not wicked people, but they are ungodly. The characteristic, do you understand, this is what is being described. Those whom God loves, some of the words that he's using, they're weak. There's nothing that is impressive. They have no strength, nothing that they're able to do for themselves. They are ungodly. And it's not only those who we would normally categorize, but every one of us falls in the category of ungodly. At any moment where God is not conscious on our thoughts, we fall in the category of ungodly. And if that sounds like it's an impossible standard, it is in one sense, because we're fallen, we're broken in this world. All of our attention is to be given to God. He should be on our minds at all times in everything, even if it's something that we're enjoying, and it's a gift that comes from him. And yet, in many of the moments, in every one of our lives, we live, we live with the blessings of God without any thought of God, or of God's glory, or our dependence upon God. As amazing as it may be in any of our lives, we understand that it's even possible to do that when you're preparing to teach God's word, to think of God and really focus on the people that you're going to talk to rather than the God that will help you share. And so we see two of the words that God is speaking of. God's love goes to the unlovely, people who are weak, people who are ungodly. Skip down to verse 8. We see that God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, in other words, while unrighteousness and ungodliness may not be the same that Bridges rightly points out. It doesn't really matter in one respect because we are both ungodly and we are unrighteous. We all are sinners. We fall short of the standard of the holiness and of the glory of God. And then the other word that we see in this passage that jumps out us is down in verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. These are not words that we generally would associate with ourselves. We are weak, ungodly, sinful enemies of God. And yet that is the characteristic of the people whom God loves. And when you think about it in that way, whether you're ready to identify yourself with any of those descriptive words or not, you think of God's love that way, we begin to see the utter uniqueness of it because now compare that to any other expression of love that we experience in this life. And every other expression of love, no matter how selfless it may be in its characteristic, also carries with it an element of either selfishness or a level of judgment. Most of us love because we get love in return. We have moments, and we see beautiful moments in, in, in life when people give when they get nothing in return. But it's a very short distance, a very minimal amount of time, only a few ticks of the clock between being selfless and just giving of yourself as an expression of love 
before now, you begin to think of yourself as a good person, a box, a status that you have earned because of what you have done. I'm not suggesting that that's something that is as awful. I'm suggesting that it's something that is part of the nature that we all share. And because of that in our culture, we, we tend to try to create certain standards of behavior so that people can become more lovely, more lovable, and then become the objects of the affection. I want you to consider how different the love of God is in the way that he pours it out on people who are his enemies. Sinful, ungodly, and weak. Now compare it to the standard of love of the season that's expressed in the Christmas song that you all know. It tells us that if you want love, you better measure up. And get it the old-fashioned way, earn it. I mean, you all know, all know the words. You know, you better watch out. And you better not cry. And you better not pout, and I'm telling you why. Because someone's coming to town, supposedly. And here's who love goes to from his standard, or how he operates. He's making a list, and he's checking it twice. And he's going to find out who's naughty or nice. And he's coming. He's coming for you. <laughs> and you're not going to escape this because he sees you when you're sleeping. <laughs> and he knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. And so here's the moral of the whole thing. So be good and for goodness sake. See, and, and the whole thing of our culture that celebrates something that is, is good, and, and I don't really mean to belittle it, but our culture is reinforcing our natural instinct of what love is. Love goes to those who deserve it. So love is giving a warning and a checklist. And if you measure up to these things, you get the goods. And if you don't measure up to these things, well, you better watch out. And yet God's love is, he knows when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. It's not difficult for him to know whether you've been bad or good because none of us are any good, at least not according to the holiness of God. And because he's aware of that and because he has come, in fact, he has come because he's aware of that. To love you. God's love is incredibly unique. God's love takes the initiative. We, we see it in these passages. I mean, remember the conditions that we have. Weak, which means we're unable to go to God. And we're sinners, which means we're unwilling to go to God. We're his enemies, so we're unlikely to go to God. And yet, God's love is preemptive. Verse 6, while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse uh, 8, God shows his love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 10, for 
if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by his death, how much more we were reconciled. God's love is poured out on the unlovely. God takes the initiative. He doesn't wait for us to measure up. He doesn't wait for us to come to him. He doesn't even wait for us to take steps to him and fail to get there. He comes to us. He has come to us in the, by becoming like us in the person of Jesus Christ, taking the initiative that you and I may be recipients of his love. His love is preemptive. He moves toward us. He encompasses us. We need to think of this when we think of God's love, is that God loves first, even as God loves most. And then God loves deepest. And God loves last. We are the beneficiaries of a God who is love. God's love is unique. God's love is initiating. And God's love is sacrificial. While we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. See, at times we give in this season gifts as expressions of our love. There is a sacrifice at times. Sometimes the sacrifice is unwise, which you will find out in February when your credit card bill comes due. Some of you more wisely have saved up so that you can give something that will be appreciated by somebody that you love. But we, we give. I don't want to suggest that there is no sacrifice in it, but the sacrifice that God makes is to the point of death. To pay the full debt, not to give something nice, not to give something beneficial to give something essential. Life. Peace with God. Joy. has all been purchased by the death that he has died. And Paul, as he's writing this, he, he recognizes that this is an area where there is some parallel, but at the same time, there is no one who, comp who compares. In verse 7, he says, For one will scarcely die for a, a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. In other words, we know this is wild. We know this is incredible. But we know other people who will lay their lives down for, for others as well. But that's when we go back and we consider the uniqueness of God's love is in the way that he gives and who he gives it to. Paul's saying that, yeah, some might die for somebody who's good. They'll die for somebody who you love, who probably loves you, somebody who does something that is important. The extent of God's life, of, of uh, sacrifice, is death for those who are ungodly, 
who are his enemies, who are sinners. And Paul's drawing the attention there and saying, there is no parallel. And God is giving a sacrifice not in some mutual, he's giving a sacrifice that is getting really no bargain in return. See, God has no need. He's sufficient in himself. From all eternity, he's lived in a perfect fellowship of the Trinity. There was love. There was glory. There was worship. There was nothing. He created us simply to express love to us. And we are the beneficiaries of the fact of his own identity that God is love. And so these are some incredible characteristics of God's love that we, we see and that I would encourage you to contemplate, particularly during this Advent season, the uniqueness of God's love, how his love is different from everything else and that the best that we see, that we see around us of love are reflections to help us get some level of understanding, even though we'll never have a comprehension of God's love. The initiating nature of it and the sacrifice of God's love. These are all truths of God's love that we, as God's people, should contemplate that people are in need of knowing. But if I stop there, I think they'd be doing a serious injustice because the whole point of this Advent season. Well, those aspects are very true and worthy of our contemplation in this Advent season. It's incomplete. Because God's love is not merely a series of truths to add to a theological discussion. But God's love has one other characteristic that's revealed in this passage that is particularly important and very personal for all of us who are gathered here today. God's love is unique. God's love is initiating. God's love is sacrificial. But God's love is also to be experienced. Back up with me one verse into verse 5. And we see another characteristic or something else that's described there. It's a, it's a, it's a problem that all of us have whether we recognize it or not. But when we see it, we see why God's love is not only something to be celebrated, but something that to be embraced. And the word is shame. Verse 5, And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, I'm not going to go into great detail as to what shame is or all the technical aspects of it or uh, that but I think sufficient for this morning is this is to define shame as all of those past failures in your life that make you cringe when you think about them shame is all those present struggles that you keep secret 
for fear of embarrassment if other people knew about them. And I don't think I need to go further because I think right there I've pretty much qualified all of us to understand some level of shame, though shame certainly goes much, much deeper and that will be a conversation for another day. But Paul's writing this with an, kind of an understanding that all of us know what shame is. All of us experience shame, and at least with those broad definitions of, of the past failures and present secrets that we, we understand. Every one of us has something going to mind that we just hope that nobody would find out or that people would forget about us. And because that's the reality of our condition, we are a people who are in, in need of love. And it makes it all the more important for us to recognize that God loves people who are sinners, people who are his enemies, people who don't love him, people who are helpless. Because we believe that there's hope for us as well. And what Paul tells us in this passage is that God's love is experienced by those people who fear, feel and fear shame. And with verse 5, he's, he's telling us this. Hope doesn't lead us to shame. Now, the hope, we won't go into it in great detail, but the hope he's talking about that is, is the biblical hope. Remember, hope in the biblical sense that we celebrate this season is not the, oh, I hope something happens. Hope is faith focused forward. Hope is faith focused in the future. Faith is rooted in the objective reality of something that has happened in history, particularly that Jesus Christ was born. He lived a perfect life. He died and he rose again for our salvation. And our faith is rooted in the objective reality of the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Christ. That's happened in reality. We're rooted. Faith is not blind. Faith is rooted in a historic reality. Hope, biblically, is to say all of those things were in the fulfillment of the prophecies. That's the reality, and everything that happened in history carries with it promises for the future that have yet to happen to us. But they are every bit as certain as what has taken place in the past because God is the one who has designed it, God is the one who has decreed it, God is the one who has delivered it, and God is the one who will come through later on. And so he's talking about this hope that goes with faith because we live in between the time of the object of our faith and the fruition of everything God has promised. And Paul is saying here that hope doesn't lead to shame. In other words, we don't have to fear what's going to happen in the future. It's not about in the future someday we will get exposed. God's setting us up somehow. And he tells us why. Hope does not put us to shame because, and because is the important word here, should be in bold, all caps, and tell us because it tells us what happens after this is very important. It's, it's the reason for everything. And we're told there the reason for that is that the Holy Spirit has been given to us. See, the coming of Christ is a package deal. 
as those who have Christ also have the Holy Spirit dwelling within them. It is a reality. Every person, beginning in this passage here in verse 1, every person who has been justified by faith that has peace with God also has the Holy Spirit dwelling within them. It's not an accomplishment. It's not an achievement. It's not a gift for a certain level of spiritual attainment. The Holy Spirit comes. It belongs to everyone who has faith in Jesus Christ. And we're told that the Holy Spirit is pouring something into our hearts in verse 5. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And what this passage is telling us is that all those characteristics that are true of God's love are not just things for us to know, but for us to experiencing because God's Holy Spirit dwelling who's taken up residence within everyone who has believed is pouring that incredible reality of the love of God into each of our hearts. He is filling up the empty spaces with God's love. Now, some may wonder, then why are we not full all the time? Why is it that we may have experienced it, but we don't live in in the fullness of that love? And and I suspect it goes back to the characteristics that's true for all of us. We're all broken. We're all cracked. We're all leaking. And while the Spirit continues to pour the love of God into us, there's something else that needs to be at work as well to stop up the leaks. I, I couldn't help but be thinking about that, was it that infomercial that really is quite annoying, but that was it the, uh, um, was it the Flex Seal thing, uh, whatever you see on TV every once in a while? You know, the guy, you know, blows a cannon through a boat and then says, see, we're going to spray this thing and the boat's going to uh, continue to, to float. I, I have no idea whether that stuff works or not. But it is a good illustration of our own spiritual lives because the things that God has promised, God is doing. And the reality is that we can experience all of that and yet we still feel very, very empty and sometimes no more so than this time of year when we become all the more aware of the fractures in our relationships, the failures in our lives, the inability for us to do the things that we want to do. The year is coming to an end. Have we done what we wanted to do? Another year is coming for some of us that begins to recognize you know, the, the calendar is not going to turn over many more times. And we don't necessarily feel filled with the love of God. The promise of the Holy Spirit is he's filling us with that love. He's pouring that into us. But we need to be reminded of the other aspects of this holiday season. Because it's the faith and the hope in what Christ has done, the whole purpose for which Christ has come, that is in the believing in that that actually seals the whole. When we preach to ourselves and remind ourselves that it's God's love that sent Jesus and for the reason that he sent us to broken people. When we own that, when we recognize that, and we remind ourselves of the very nature of God and what Jesus has done as God in the flesh, the cracks begin to get filled up. And the Holy Spirit, who is filling us with God's love, is pouring his love 
we experience it. This is an incredible picture of the work of God in our lives that we find here in this passage. It's not always associated with Christmas. But everything that Christmas truly promises is found here. And the love of God wraps it all up. We have our celebrations, we have our expectations, we have our hopes, we have all sorts of things that take place in this Christmas season. Most of them are, are wonderful, wonderful things. But the good news of Christmas comes when we have a settled peace and joy that God loves us even despite ourselves. If you ask for nothing else this Christmas, ask God to seal your brokennesses and fill you with his love. Because then you'll know what God is like, what life is for, and how loved you are. Father, fill us with the love that has been given to us in Christ. We may experience it and enjoy it and love you in response. Fill us with your love that may overflow. That not only would we have it, but it would spill upon those whom we come in contact with. Bless us with the experience of your promise, given us the gift of Christ this season. I pray in his name.